My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Zach Carabell. Zach, a lot of interesting things I want to go over with you based on some of your prior podcasts and interviews you've done. But introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? Oh, man, that's a loaded I question. I want to go see the start. I, I know, see really. Like, like, it sounds like a softball, but it's really a stealth arrow. I have had, let's say, a 25-year career as an investor. I've been a portfolio manager. I started one of the first China... Yeah, mutual funds when I was running Fred Alger and Company, and I ran a hedge fund focused on sustainability. I have written 13 books. I was an academic. I have a PhD from Harvard. I do a lot of writing. I was on CNBC for years. I do my own podcast called What Could Go Right, a weekly newsletter for the Progress Network, which I created, which is a way of steering people toward looking to the upside and not always to the downside. Not that there isn't a downside, just that we spend a little too much time staring into the abyss rather than raising our eyes to what might be a brighter future if we will create it. So that's me. You are probably one of the first optimists I've had as a guest <laughs> for the year. And I say that because you and I both know that, let's face it, the equivalent of sex sales and financial media is negativity. Yeah. Right? The bear narrative always not only sounds smarter, but People just love to hear it, independent of what actually happens in reality. And I myself at times I'm negative, obviously, and, and positive, but that's a truism. I, I am curious if, just given your years in the, in the industry, if you find that it's getting harder and harder to find real optimists when it comes to market. It, it has felt to me like I have been on a very similar shtick the entire time I've been on this shtick. I did a talk a couple weeks ago in Puerto Rico and I talked right after Peter Schiff. And for those of you who don't know, Peter Schiff is a permabull would be, permabear would be making him uh, too optimistic. He is a doom and gloom guy like Noriel Rubini. And I admitted, look, everybody's got their thing and his thing is the world coming to an end and mine is that it's not. But I feel like at every point in time, really since 2000, I mean, think about the 21st century. It has been a, a cascade of legitimately problematic events from the collapse of the, the then 1990s NASDAQ bubble in March of 2000, followed by 9-11, followed by the 2002 recession, 2008, 2009, COVID. There's been bright spots in the middle, but a lot of those felt if he, even when they were bright, like the housing CD, uh, 2006, 2007. So I don't really feel like it's getting harder to be positive because I think it's been hard really the entire time I can remember. There's been a lingering tone of everything might seem okay right now, but it's worth skating on thin ice and everything's going to collapse. And the banking system is over levered, the consumer's over levered, and the global system is overly dependent for a while on China and the U.S. and now global conflict. I, th I feel like people have been consumed by worries. Markets have done fine. They haven't done great. This has not been a stellar 25 years. It's been a okay 24 years, but certainly not nearly bad the way sentiment is bad. And then you have the kind of permeable uh, attitude, which has become to feel almost cynical. You know, it's more like trading momentum than it is any fundamental conviction in like Apple's doing well because they happen to be selling a lot of units. Maybe they're selling less this quarter than last quarter. Maybe they'll sell more next quarter than they did this quarter. But the, you know, net net, they're still selling a lot of phones and a lot of computers and a lot of services on their app store. 
regardless of whether or not Gaza is wiped off the face of the earth or Israel is as well, right? These things exist in a parallel but alternate reality that seems not to fully transcend the climate of negativity. And I think it's fair to say that climate of negativity obviously gets accentuated because that which you know is viral on social media is rarely positive. Right? It's often the negativity, and that's maybe part of our evolutionary bias, right? To just be on the lookout for things that can that can hurt us and be damaging. But I do wonder if some of the negativity is justified more in the sense of how people feel relative to each other. So we know that the standard of living has obviously gone up worldwide for a number of, of decades and everybody has a better life than they did many, 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 many years ago. Um, but the the gap between the haves and have-nots, the, the widening wealth gap, that does create a, a feeling of, using your word, cynicism. I would think about how strong the economy and the world is. Yeah, like we can get into this more because obviously the the thing today that's most palpable is is this vibe session. Like what's what's going on? Sentiment versus data, attitudes versus what we can discern as reality. That gap has clearly become huge in ways that I think really we do need to look at because there's something something going on here that isn't entirely making sense, right? I have my own... Should we talk about that now? You want to get into that? So, so, yeah, let's get into that because I think it is an interesting dynamic of sort of the reality versus the the feeling. Yeah, and and look, I the one thing I do want to push back on is the, the common explanation for the gap between what people feel and what the statistics and the data say is... The statistics are wrong or the data is wrong, right? But but then the data is always there. If that's the case, then you have to backtrack and go, why at most periods of time over the past 50, 60 years, when data was good, people felt okay. And when the data was bad, people felt bad, right? If it's, it's not like it's suddenly wrong. There's no difference in the way it's kept now. And, 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 and in terms of, let's, let's talk about first of all, what that data is. When we talk about the data shows that things are better than people think. What, what are the, what are the data points? You GDP data, inflation data, wage data, job data, or job statistics, right? So statistics are stories we tell about data. Both the data and the statistics are telling a relatively good story about whatever it is we call the economy. And I've, I've written in the past, that there is no the economy, right? It's a statistical construct. It's not physical, tangible thing. It, it, we, we, we do create a statistical picture of this thing we call the economy. And in most respects, that statistical picture is as good as it's been for years. You know, it's about where it was in 2019. Yet that is clearly not what most people feel. Younger people in particular basically feel this is a crappy, crappy economic moment. Even as employment numbers are 3.7% where they were in 2019 when presumably the economy was good. And you, you certainly cannot argue with widespread sentiment by simply quoting chapter and verse of economic statistics. That's, it's a, it's a losing debate insofar as people don't feel numbers. They feel what they feel, but there is this incredible gap and. I, we 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 all need to begin to investigate what's going on here. I wonder how much of that is connected to the basic necessities, meaning housing affordability. Younger people probably are negative because they don't really view there's a possibility that they can maybe own their own home the way other generations. Yeah, although like that too. One of the perplexing things, I live in New York City. So one of the perplexing things about New York City is, what's that old joke, Groucho or whatever, like the 
that club's so crowded, nobody goes there anymore. And like housing is clearly unaffordable in large swaths of Manhattan and Brooklyn, just as it is in San Francisco, even though San Francisco is or is not falling apart. And yet the vacancy rates are incredibly low. Now, even if you factor in, maybe some of those vacancy rates are manipulated by landlords who aren't putting their apartments on the market in order to keep the vacancy rate statistically low in order to keep rents high, right? Because some of that might be going on, but it's not likely to be going on enough to explain the fact that it is simultaneously unaffordable and yet being afforded by somebody or some set of people. The same thing about housing, like interest rates and mortgage rates may be higher than they've been since, what, 2001 or 1999, which has had a chill a little bit on housing market activity. Most A lot of people locked in their rates years ago at much lower rates, which is, yes, it's going to be a long-term problem because they're less inclined to sell when they're more 30 years locked in at 3% when they can only do a new 30-year at 7% or whatever the, the gap is. But you, you do have these issues of, it's not like it's it, it's so different. New York's been unaffordable forever. San Francisco's been unaffordable forever. What, what may have changed, or at least this is a, one theory of the case, is COVID up, upended a lot of people's expectations of the world is as it is and it's going to be as it was, and therefore created a great deal of insecurity about either government policy or epidemiology or some combination of the two. Combined with one thing that you really do have globally over the past years, and I think this is social media enhanced, is vastly rising expectations of what constitutes a good life and what a government and a society should should provide in a wealthy, stable way. And so the, the level of discontent with what used to be acceptable and the ability of our system and Western Europe system and China system and anybody's system to provide commensurate with expectations. I think that gap has gotten huge. It also seems that the discontent is correlated to who's who's in the White House and what one's political views are. Right? People tend to view, for example, if I go to Threads, right, which is clearly, you know, from what I've seen at least, much more liberal in the audience than let's call it X's audience, which is maybe more conservative, Republican versus Democrat. If I say, if I post something that's negative about the economy, it gets a lot of attention on X. If I say something, that same post that's negative on threads, uh, I get all kinds of pushback from people that are saying, oh, this is such a great economy. Biden's done such a great job. So I, I assume that there's a. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. There's a sort of political lens through which people are also viewing their feelings on the economy and how good things are, independent of whether it's actually real or not. Yeah, although the one thing that's different now, it's certainly been true for, I don't know, in the 21st century, that the party not in the White House thinks the economy is worse than the party in the White House does. So if it's a Democrat president, Republicans think the economy is crap. Republican president, Democrats think the economy is crap. What's unusual now 
is how many particularly younger Democrats think the economy is crap or that Biden is failing. And, and again, maybe he is, maybe he's not. I'm just saying that that pattern has broken down so that now a plurality of people, regardless of party, or maybe a majority of people, regardless of party, think, think something very different or feel something very different about what it is we call the economy than what the statistics that we use to gauge the economy are telling us at both a local and a national level. And one other wrinkle in this is that people are not behaving commensurate with their feelings, right? They're not hunkering down. They're not not spending. They're not not getting jobs. They're, they're, they're spending as if things are good. They're employed as if things are good. They're living as if things are good. Travel is up. All sorts of entertainment and eating out and like across the board, across the country. And yet they're feeling largely negative. And it, I do think this rising expectations issue is a, is a huge one in that there is genuine economic insecurity in the United States and has been for years, right? We have this incredibly expensive set of social safety nets between Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security and wealth, food stamps, and different programs. But it's also an incredibly confusing, bureaucratically entangled, opaque system where it's easy to feel insecure even as we spend trillions of dollars trying to create a safety net. And I used to think, well, you know, Canada and Europe had some of the formula down in that they have a much less complicated bureaucracy of delivering that safety net, right? If you're born in France, you have healthcare, you have education, basically you have basic housing without having to prove a means test and lose your lose those benefits if you fill out paperwork wrong, whatever. But even there, people are feeling insecure and angry, right? And I think that you have to account for that rising expectations issue that what was okay 20 years ago is just not acceptable now. I, I, one of the things I used in my talks over the years is in 1948, the apex of what was seen as like, I've reached the middle class. I'm an American. I've, I've, I've made it. I've, I was a GI. I went to college. I got my college bill. And I bought my first house at a Levittown subdivision, right? That was the first kind of cookie cutter subdivisions in the United States, late 40s. And the average benefit of a Levittown in the late 40s was like 800 square feet. You had two rooms at the top of the stairs, two rooms at the bottom. You had a kitchen without a refrigerator, maybe at an icebox. You had a, some version of a jalopy in the driveway that had no anti-lock brakes, no seat belts, no air conditioning. Maybe it got 10 miles to the gallon and, but it, it had ashtrays. So like you could, you could, you could die smoking, you could die in the car. But this was so at that moment in time, that was like, that was it. I've arrived. That clearly that would be worse than unacceptable today. Like if I told you that was your 22 year old's first car house, like they'd be like that. And, and that's good that expectations have risen. What's not so good. Not only expectations, but what we deliver has risen. Now it's like 2,100 square feet for your average house. But the problem is people start to expect what they hear and see on Instagram. or And that was true 20 years ago. Like people used to say, we were friends, the apartment on Friends was clearly unaffordable to that group of people, where it was and how big it was and how nice it was. So I think this mismatch between what, what we expect between what the system delivers in terms of it's, a, it is very a complicated system. Most people are living without a sufficient economic cushion. So there's a degree of insecurity of, oh my God, if I lose my job, if something like COVID or healthcare or 
unexpected large expenses. There's clearly not as much elasticity there. And all that combines to form a kind of sea of discontentment. So I guess the question is, is there, is it almost like a PR issue for society, like that we have to find messages or ways of getting people to realign their perceptions uh, properly? Yeah, although it's like a, it's like a individual and collective PR issue. It's not like, like the White House could do a better job, right? And, that, and I think this is where the problem lies. So if you think about it from a political perspective, the Democrats are going to try to inform people about how good the economy is, which I think in many ways is simply a losing strategy, right? You cannot tell someone who is legitimately insecure. And what I mean by legitimately insecure is if you think that, a, that an affluent society should be able to deliver the promise that you won't go into an economic tailspin because of a health crisis or that you will be able to afford a home at some point. Like the idea that, that, that are, those aren't legitimate insecurities simply because we're doing better than your parents' generation did, even though you think you're doing worse. Like, I don't think that works. I do think telling these stories comparatively and slowly through conversations like this, trying to help people take a step back and realize, yes, this system isn't meeting your needs and expectations, but it's actually meeting them as well as it ever has, is actually a different statement than it's failing to meet them in a way that it used to. I think one of the most pernicious aspects of our contemporary world is the belief that things were better. Um, it, when people look back at the 1950s, it's halcyon moment of less wage gap, more equality, where a single working man, and it was always a single working man, and usually a single working white man could support his family on a salary and have a pension and retire. That system worked for a lot of people, but it also didn't work for a lot of people. It didn't work if you were African-American. It didn't work if you were a woman, which is why you had the tumult of the 60s, right? Which was this massive cry of kind of rage of, hey, wait a minute, I'm not included in this so-called perfect equation. And I think it's really important for people to realize you can simultaneously be deeply discontent with what of the failings of our economic and political system now without believing that we used to do better. It's the belief that we used to do better, I think, that kind of gets in the way of doing better now because it, it sets up a false path that we're never going to return to anyway. But even more, that, that makes the present seem way more problematic than it ought to be. It's funny because that goes obviously right into Trump and even the Make America Great Again Logan, right? It's, it, to your point, it's, it's a totally different mentality to think through what's happened in the past versus now. I wonder if that, as that dynamic worsens, and it probably is going to continue to worsen unless there's some dramatic optimism boost that happens, what the, what the implications are on society, right? I mean, if you keep on having an inconsistency of how the present looks and feels among different parts of the country, that divisiveness at some point does get to be really, really problematic. Yeah, look, I think we should all be members of the MAG party. Right. We should all be members of the Make America Great Party. Just drop one letter and you've, you've got me. Or like, I'm, I'm three quarters of the way there. But it's the again part. This, it's really the problem because as I said, the, the periods that people tend to romanticize jokingly off the cuffs, like the right romanticizes the fifties and the left romanticizes the sixties and both are wrong about both. And chasing a, chasing a, a past that didn't exist is a totally losing formula for the present and the future. Thinking about where we're, we're falling short is a totally winning one. 
But, and, and I don't have any hope that this is going to change on TV. If we're going to use their talking points and they're going to use their talking points, whether it's on CNBC or MSNBC or Fox or you name it. And as you said, like, market discussions are a little different than these political and economic discussions. There's certainly bearishness in markets, but it, but it all feeds into the same, like, we've created this house of cards economically. That's what the Tea Party was founded on. That's what the Freedom Caucus is fueled on. That's what a lot of Wall Street short sellers are, you know, believe, are, are trading on the beliefs that we're just printing money and it's, it's all going to collapse in some conflagration of, of speculative bubbles bursting. And look, some of that may be true. I always feel like if you're going to predict an absolute collapse, particularly in markets, just don't give a date because you can always say, well, just wait, right? You can't be proven wrong if what you're saying is it's going to happen. And yet I am still struck by not by the volatility of the past 24 years and not by the crises. And look, I was in the middle of the 2008, 2009 crisis. I was managing money, money at the right before everything fell apart. And I certainly had moments in those, let's say, September of 08 to March of 09. I had moments thinking like, wow, maybe, maybe this is as bad as people are saying. And it was really bad at the moment, right? But it, it recovered pretty quickly. I did joke on TV once when people were talking about volatility of market indices as things were falling at a 5% one day and 4% one day. I mean, these were huge moves. The equivalent would be, what's well, a Dow at now? 3,800. It'd be like the Dow falling 2,000 a day. I did that. It did that a little in 2011, right? It did that absolutely for two weeks in March of 2000 as we were unclear whether the world was over as we knew it because of COVID and government responses. But then I thought, okay, things are going to zero, right? Everything, unless society completely collapses, in which case these conversations we're having right now are, you know, useless. We should be thinking about food supply and shelter. Um, you know, you have to remind yourself of, we live in a much more, we live in a much more stable world than the first half of the 20th century between World War One and World War Two, right? Nothing that's going on in Israel and Gaza or Sudan or parts of Congo or Myanmar, as awful as they all are collectively in a world of doing 8 billion people, they are not anywhere near as globally disruptive as what happened routinely from 1914 to 1945. And somehow we muddled through that as humanity. I'm not saying, oh, it's not World War II, so don't worry about it. But I am saying that it's important to gain some perspective on what we are hysterical about in the present. Do you get a sense that this is a, a uniquely U.S. phenomenon? Or do you get a sense that internationally other countries, their citizens have similar vibe session feels? I, I think it is unequivocally the case that never have so many people in the world, have so many human souls had more material security, food, clothing, shelter, more caloric abundance, more freedom from war and early death than ever before at any point in human history and never before have so many people simultaneously been so pissed off um, globally. I mean, it, it is hard to find anywhere in the world where people are not really negative about their government, their president, and their society. And you can find pockets where that's not true. The Saudis are having a moment domestically where they are feeling incredibly confident about the future and, and their own society, which is quite at odds with what we think about the Saudis. But I'm just telling you, that's what the Saudis think about themselves. There's some more sort of 
optimism in India, although it's certainly complicated. Modi is is both a popular and divisive figure. Outside those pockets, and Indonesia is going to go to their election soon, largest Muslim democracy in the world, 240, 50 million people. But it's it's hard to find much in the way of um, genuine, positive views about what's going on politically, economically, and socially in any society anywhere in the world. But this is definitely not an American thing. It has it has American specifics in our own country. Uh, people certainly remarked from 2016 to 2020 that Trump, the particular flavor of Donald Trump was was echoed in other countries by AMLO in Mexico and Orban in Hungary and Erdogan in Turkey and Duterte in the Philippines, some of whom were still in office, some of whom were not, Bolsonaro in Brazil. So yeah, this is definitely not an American thing. And I think that's why I come back to the rising expectations, because that's some, something that's true of middle classes, of people globally, and is definitely fueled by social media, meaning our awareness of what's possible, visually, audio, immediate, through these mediums of information, the, the, the visceral knowledge of what is possible for people to have and how it's possible for them to live has never been more immediate and, and we've never been more bombarded. I'm saying something rather different than what a lot of people are saying, which is that these mediums bombard us with negative information. They also bombard us with positive aspirational images of what, like what people are buying and how they're living, all of which is a bit of a fictional story in its own way. And that that in itself creates some of the discontent. Like, hey, why am I not living the way these people are living that I can see but I can't touch? Yeah, it, 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 it's to the point where it's all the availability heuristic. Right. Right. That, that's what the algorithm puts, which makes sense because there's only so much you can show at the top of the fold. Right. But at the same time, that has all kinds of unintended, unintended consequences on the on the average. Right. But, you know, but I'm saying it's not all just negative imagery. A lot of it's positive imagery. Right. right. It's like the happy vacation, the, the pictures of your friends on a cruise ship. It's nobody shows themselves. And I guess on TikTok they do. But for the most part, people to show themselves like breaking down because they had a shitty day. Right. They show themselves in great clothes or going out or talking and. I think we underestimate that aspect of it. The kind of the the Joneses that you're keeping up with are now a global, the best of ourselves at every given moment that we then judge our present against. I think that doesn't get sufficient attention. It's not like the war and famine and, and oh my God, things are falling apart. Like, as you said, that's been true of journalism. If it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. That's been true of the financial media forever, right? If you were to look through Barron's and the 1980s. It was not a. It was not a traipse through. Wow, aren't things great? It was. Oh my God, the SNL crisis, and oh my God, the junk bond crisis, and oh my God, the corporate raiders are coming after you. That's where Carl Icahn came to collective consciousness, along with T. Boone Tickens and all these people in the 80s who were the raiders and like not the football team. For those of you who don't remember the corporate raider theme of the 1980s, but. It's, it's the imagery of all the possibility of all the things that you don't have, the beautiful houses, the, the kind of lifestyles of the rich and famous, except it's now 24-7. Right, but, but I agree, they're, they're, they're still interrelated, right? Because to the extent that somebody sees all those positive images and the aspirational aspect and then is saying, why am I not like that? It must be because of some other guy or some other you know, entity. And, and oftentimes that's the government, right? You can argue that there's a, they're connected in that way. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I totally agree. I, I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think we give enough, enough attention to the kind of the, the aspirational envy, discontent, that the positive imagery that is s- somewhat a story. We give a lot of attention to all the negativity on, the, on, on social media. 
and and on the media in general. But it, as you said, it interacts with this other thing, which is like the aspirational. But the aspirational can create its own kind of discontent. Like, why am I not doing better? And and this is true too for the financial media. You've been doing this for years, right? Nobody gets on CNBC, and I was on CNBC hundreds of times, and talks about how bad their portfolio is doing. Right. They're always like, Oh, this is a buy. We really like this. Nobody comes back and says, that was a really bad call. I know I said, I know Jim Cramer has gotten legitimate critique for, he, he says, buy, 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 but rarely just is, is held accountable for when those buys go bad. No one gets up and like has to reveal their portfolio performance. If you just listen to everybody in both social media and financial media, you assume that all the experts you were listening to are like making loads of money, like that they're all brilliant traders making the right call at every moment, which we know is not true. Like if they were all so rich, they wouldn't be on TV. And yes, they might be because it's fun to be on TV, but you, you, you get my kind of point, which is if they were all doing so well, they probably wouldn't have to manage other people's money. They'd all be... We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I want to pivot a little bit since you mentioned the first China mutual fund. China obviously gets a lot of play in the media and it's not optimistic when it comes to China at all. But I want to relate that pivoting to Trump because you sent me a DM saying the idea that he would come in and throw in a whole bunch of more added tariffs to China is alone a reason not to vote for him. Although Biden kept the tariff ethic largely in play. I didn't really do too much on that end. You correct me if I'm wrong on that. But lay out, lay out some of your thoughts on, first of all, where China is now, because I'm sure you're observing it, in the context of the election and in the context of just broader cycles, given your prior experience in investing. Yeah, when I say I created one of the first China mutual funds, there had been a bunch around in the 90s that only invested in Chinese companies listed in Hong Kong. I, with my colleagues at Alger, created this thing called the China U.S. Growth Fund, which was the first to, as its investment thesis, invested in U.S. companies that were seeing their most robust growth from exposure to the Chinese market. So we would buy like Yum Brands when it was languishing in 2002. And the Trump has recently on the campaign trail, including on Fox over the weekend, talked about a 60% tariff from day one on all Chinese imports into the United States, as well as a global 10% tariff on all goods the United States import. We're in a very kind of, I think, dangerous balance between executive branch and the congressional one of the things that was supposed to be pretty clear in the Constitution was that Congress was in charge of the purse and the executive was the executive. And because of these emergency powers slash special exemption clauses that were stuck into various bills, including this very wonky section, I think 232 of, of, of uh, um, the Trade Expansion Act, which is what it allows the president to discretionarily slap on punitive tariffs as a, as a way of coercing recalcitrant trade partners, that we've allowed the president to have this bizarrely unilateral power to essentially tax American goods, American goods as in goods sold in the United States, even if they're imported from another country. And Trump used that power and Biden's used that power. So it's definitely not a Democrat-Republican split on that. 
But if you're then suggesting, you know, whether you think China is like the enemy of all enemies, it, we still have a $2 trillion plus interdependence with China between their holdings of U.S. treasuries and our collective export and imports of Chinese goods, many of which are just American-sourced goods in China, like an iPhone. And as much as U.S. companies may be trying to diversify away from that, that we have the supply chains we have and are going to have them for years. If you just slap a 60% tariff on that, and where Trump is just completely wrong, even though I think he believes this, is that that's just a tax on Americans. It's not like the Chinese are paying that. It's the, the Americans who import those goods are paying that. And it's, it's fascinating to me that you can talk about this unilateral imposition of a tax that raises costs dramatically for American consumers. And in fact, the first set of tariffs which led to some Chinese retaliatory tariffs, also led to the necessity of spending $30 billion to support Iowa and other farmers whose soybean exports to China were crushed by Chinese retaliation in the face of those tariffs, right? So that you, you both taxed American consumers, and then you had to spend money to support American industry. Agriculture is a form of American industry. So, you know, the disruption that that would cause is truly hard to calculate. We were able to manage 25% tariffs on, on a third of Chinese imports, which is about where, which is about the amount of, of tariffs that were placed on Chinese goods by Trump and then maintained by Biden. I suppose you could do 60% tariffs as long as you then spent a trillion plus dollars propping up American industry and American spending. But then what you're basically saying is, I'm just going to spend that much more money doling out money to Americans to compensate for the disastrous effects of these tariffs. That would be an honest policy, right? I'm going to try to sever the U.S.-China economic relationship. And in order to compensate for the economic disruptions and pain that that will cause, we'll just spend a lot of money. Um, but I don't hear that part of the equation. Yeah, and I, I, think those, I think those nuances would not, be, would not be realized by voters and of course, him saying something doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. But although, although, you know, although this one, right? There's a lot that Trump says that you should discount, but the willingness to use extremely high tariffs as a tool to achieve American manufacturing independence is clearly something he's done and is willing to do, even though it would seem to me rankly unconstitutional to allow the president, any president, including Biden, maintaining these tariffs the sort of unilateral taxation power that doesn't seem to have been effectively challenged. So he both has the power and the willingness. The, I'm just curious, on, as far as kind of your own view, do you view uh, tariffs as, as uh, a, necessarily, a necessary tool uh, that can, can help achieve certain domestic goals? Or is it always just a tax and there's other ways around getting to go up production? Well, it is always just a tax. And I think the tariffs, I, mean, I meant what I said, which is if you really want to try to sever in a much more rapid way the U.S.-China economic relationship, then a massive trade war is a way of doing that. As long as you recognize that that's going to have trillions of dollars of collateral costs. Like if you suddenly say to hundreds of American multi-billion dollar companies or even trillion dollar companies in the case of Apple, that you're sourcing as of whatever, four weeks from now is null and void for your economic model. These, these supply chains took decades to create and trillions and trillions of dollars of investment, factories and shipping and ports and logistics. It's not like it's, it's not like it's just a factory. It's a factory with supplies and parts and and, and getting things from point A to B. 
all those can be rebuilt, right? None of it has to be in China. But it, it's not like you can just snap your fingers and tomorrow everything that you're now sourcing in China gets sourced somewhere else. In addition to the fact that a lot of these companies have hundreds of billions or close to trillions of dollars of business in China, that reflects in their stock price and in that way also benefits the U.S. economy. If you're going to sever that overnight or try to do that overnight, which you probably could do at tariffs at a certain level, you better be willing to spend commensurate amounts of money immediately. Otherwise, yeah, the stock market's going to implode. Bond yields are going to do whatever they're going to do. It would it would be a the equivalent of like a a nuclear bomb dropped in the middle of trade. Speaking about the things that the market cares about or doesn't care about, you did mention to me also via DM that you thought the Middle East, Middle East doesn't make any difference to the economy and the stock market. There was a time when a lot of people were nervous about the Middle East and the impact on the U.S., largely obviously because of oil. And it is remarkable when when Israel and Hamas started, everybody on X was freaking out about oil spiking, right? And that was going to tank the market. And it ended up being the exact opposite. Um, why is that? Why is it that the Middle East is not anywhere near as important as the U.S.? Yeah, furthermore, if you look at the price of oil since November, right, it's 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 where it was. It's lower than what it was on October 7th, the price of oil, by, by 15%, which is not what you would have thought. And and markets used to freak out anytime anything happened in the Middle East, like, oh my God, oil prices or global stability. And when I say it doesn't matter, I just like, please, everyone be clear. I'm saying it doesn't matter to stock prices and the economy. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. Like you could, the two truths can be simultaneously true that it is awful and matters greatly, and it has no impact on how many iPhones Apple's going to sell or what the price of capital is in the United States. And the oil thing is larger because the United States has become the largest marginal producer between fracking and, and gas. Well, the the Western world, including the United States, no longer depends nearly as much on Middle Eastern oil. So even the disruption. The disruption caused by the Houthis in the Red Sea is actually more an issue of cargo shipping costs. It, you have to go around the Cape of Good Hope as opposed to go through the Suez Canal. Then it is an issue of oil transport. And that's a real issue, right? Cargo, it does take a lot longer still, even with good engines to go around the Cape of Good Hope than it does go through the Suez Canal. But it's just not as important. The global There's a global oil supply glut relative to plateauing, if not decreasing demand. And the United States has become one of the largest, well, actually the largest supplier of oil. And so it just doesn't matter as much to the price of oil. What would matter more from a geopolitical front then? If if it wasn't Russia, right? It's not the Middle East. Are are we just now uh, not at risk of exogenous shocks from geopolitical dynamics hitting oil markets? I I think that's largely true. We, we, even the, right, we supported Russia. Sorry, we we managed to integrate the removal of Russian gas and oil. None of the crises that we thought were going to inflict Western Europe in 2022 and 2023 came to pass. Was, do you, I mean, you remember there was all this, and after February of, of 22, like the Europeans were going to have to ration heat, and they were going to be able to get through the winter. Right? None of that happened. I'm not. I'm not like again. I'm not saying it was easy. I'm just saying it didn't happen. Russian oil isn't really taken off the market. U.S. sanctions and Western sanctions against Russia have taken Russian oil off of European market, but they're they're still selling plenty of oil to India and China. Uh, And in a kind of a fungible way, it's not off the market at all, which is partly why Putin 
is in none of the economic difficulties that was lauded when these sanctions were put in place, right? It was going to put this huge squeeze on Putin. It's like, put no squeeze on Putin. The oil's 9 million barrels a day or floating freely from Russia into the, the global system. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what kind of exogenous shocks. Like I, Honestly, I'm, I'm, I would be more worried about the immediate effects of 60% tariffs on Chinese goods than almost any international conflict in terms of the supply of oil. The, the risk from a geopolitical front isn't international. Exactly. That's, I think, that's the point. I, I am curious, just from, from your own standpoint, in terms of your own investing and everything else that you're looking at, a, any thoughts on just where markets are or where, from an asset allocation perspective, things look more intriguing or maybe more vulnerable. What are you doing for your own portfolio? Like one thing I don't do, which I would like to do, and it would be nice if I was better at doing, is I, I do think we're essentially in the world that we were in up to March of 2020, which is contrary to the expectations of people who think that inflation has been a an invisible beast. I think we are largely in a deflationary world. Grace of technology, information technologies that are just making everything cheaper. Even even healthcare is cheaper. The problem in the United States is that the delivery of healthcare is more expensive, meaning it is actually cheaper to do a lot of things, imaging and tests. We just haven't figured out a way to create an effective system. So we have a massively ineffective, costly system, even though the, the, the delivery of the goods, the goods themselves are cheaper. So there's service inflation, but there's not really goods and stuff inflation. And you also have a plateauing of global population. The, 21st, the story of the 21st century is going to be depopulation, not overpopulation. The fear of the 20th century was overpopulation. We, I don't think we've fully caught up to just how dramatic the reality of depopulation is going to be. And I suppose that could still change. Demographics are fluid. They're not set. But it, it would seem, given current trends, that we are going to depopulate, not, not overpopulate by the middle and then the end of the 21st century. And that also is also largely deflationary. The older you get, the less you consume, except of healthcare, which the older you get, the more you consume. So I, I think if you could play the reality of, it's, it's hard for me to foresee an interest rate environment if, if interest rates are indeed somewhat connected to inflation and growth. It's hard for me to see an interest rate environment going up over time. You know, I, I, don't, I don't fully know how to play that best as an investor, I suppose, yeah, I could buy lots of 30-year treasuries, but I don't know how much money I'd make doing that. Um, so I, I think that's a general reality. Maybe there are fixed-income people who know exactly how to play that between short-term and intermediate and long duration. And I think you, you do have this... The only, I guess the only phenomenon that troubles me in markets is the degree to which so much of economic activity and profit seems to be captured by so few companies is is not the healthiest thing in the world. But I don't I don't know how that ends, right? You can't really argue that Meta and Apple and Amazon and Microsoft are overvalued per se relative to the market. They're making huge amounts of profit. I think Meta's jump last week was what was the largest uh, large cap gain in history. So but I'm not I'm not ready to like go short any of those names. I don't short anyway. So let's say metaphorically, I'm not ready to go short, meaning I'm not ready to think that this is incredibly overextended and therefore it should end anytime soon. Wait, which, and, and that caused us to go full circle because that concentration of, of uh, market cap and momentum being just a select number of stocks, it, the, the stock market, I'd argue, has become a, a version of reality in terms of society too, right? To, to the extent that you have a, a gap between rich and poor, you have a gap between mega cap and everything else, gap between corporation and individual, that makes everybody cringy. Right. 
think, and I think, and I think there too, the issue is less about the gap than whether or not all all ships are rising, right? The issue is not, and this obviously would be an entirely other conversation, but short answer is my argument is that the issue is not that the gap exists. It's it's only the gap only matters if the 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 bottom part is stagnant and the top part is rising. If everything is rising, even if the top is rising more, I think that's essentially sustainable, right? I don't think the gap is the issue. And in stock market terms, is it's like I, it doesn't matter if Nvidia doubles from here. It matters whether the Russell mid cap goes up ten percent. Fine if Nvidia doubles if the, the mid cap goes up ten percent. It's not fine if Nvidia doubles if the, if mid cap goes down five percent. So it's it's. I think the issue is more is is there rising tide overall rather than a small amount of rising tide and a lot of receding tide. That, I think, is unsustainable. I've used that line many times, when a rising tide does not lift all boats, everybody drowns. Right. That's a great, that's a great uh, line. I think that really... That's a great... I, I really think that's, that... And that's, that's been my own criticism around what's gone on the last 10 months of markets. But yeah, that's a conversation for another day. Zach, for those who want to track more of your thoughts and, and maybe list your podcast, where would you point them? So the podcast is called What Could Go Right Weekly. It's on all platforms. So whatever you use, you can find it. The Progress Network, which I don't necessarily lead, but I is my project, does a weekly newsletter called What Could Go Right. That's not really a market newsletter, but it is a highlighting things going on in the world that you wouldn't have noticed in the cacophony of negativity. So elimination of malaria or things that countries that you don't usually pay attention to are doing well. All which does matter to a global economic system, right? And we just don't pay attention to it because it's not of immediate interest for whatever reason. So we, we highlight that weekly with links. Follow me on Twitter at Zachary Carabell. And that's probably the best way to do it. Everybody, please make sure you give Zach a uh, follow. I enjoyed this conversation personally. Again, this will be an edited podcast under Lead Lag Live. And hopefully I'll see you all later in the week. I've got, I think, another five or six spaces lined up here. Thanks, Zach. Thank you, Michael. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Hopefully we worked that out at the beginning. The magic of editing for the podcast. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.